Welcome to That You May Grow Thereby. We are thankful that you have joined us today. This is the work of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. We're located at 18 Scott Drive in Florence, Kentucky. You can reach us at www.nkcofc.com. And now, That You May Grow Thereby. Thank you for listening to That You May Grow Thereby. My name is Greg Littmer, and I am one of the elders at the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. I'm Jacob Taylor, one of the evangelists. I'm Ross Oldenkamp, also an evangelist. And we're continuing our study of Matthew chapter 20. We'll be looking at verses 17 through 19. It's also found in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, and Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34. But for our purposes, we'll read Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priest and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him to the Gentiles, to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. Now Jesus turns with determination to go to Jerusalem. Mark tells us that Jesus went before them, and the disciples were amazed and afraid, following behind. This is definitely different from previous times when Jesus had gone to Jerusalem. Mark does not explain whether the feelings of the apostles result from the change implied in Jesus' looks, attitude, and conduct, or from their fearful anticipation as to the results of the journey. Maybe both influenced them. They were filled with awe at Jesus and afraid to remain in his immediate company. Hence they hung back, not at his command, but because of the atmosphere about him. They also were afraid as they anticipated the desperate crisis which was about to ensue at Jerusalem. They believed Jesus to be the Son of God but he has predicted his own death and intimated that he will not defend himself from his foes. What then? You know, Luke's account tells us in 1834, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. And uh, it it's hard to understand that for us because of our clear picture that we have, but... Uh, in, in a little while, the disciples will say, okay, Jesus, now you're speaking plainly. And I just kind of chuckle and think he, he's been saying it plainly for a little while now. And it just shows the power of, uh, of how deceptive preconceived notions can be. Bias that we have when we read the scriptures. Every time we read, we should try to be uh, like a blank slate, and not allow preconceived notions. We should always test those things and see if there's some way that we're deficient in our understanding because we never want to get to a place where we are, uh, well, like he says, where, where God's word is hidden from us because of something that I'm holding on to that, that was incorrect. Yeah, I clearly see Jesus absolutely knew what was coming. Um, that's very plain. To see, and I, it's just a amazing thing for me to, um, and I think we've talked about it before on our, on here is 
knowing what was going to happen and still going through it um, and going through it fully, completely. Uh, I just I just can't imagine, you know, in, in things in, in my life where you may know kind of the idea of what's coming um, and that can cause so much stress, anxiety. Um, but for Jesus to know exactly, fully what was coming, um, not saying that um, for sure that he was extremely stressed or extremely anxious, although I'm sure there was a bit of um, a piece to that, as we see in the Garden um, of Gethsemane, for example. But he absolutely knew what was coming, and it wasn't a, um, well, here we go, let's get this over with. It was, I mean, he was doing it completely and fully for you and for me. It's just beautiful. I find it interesting that the account tells us Jesus took the twelve apart from the rest. It may have been that they were traveling in a caravan, I don't know, headed for Jerusalem, but the prediction was clear and explicit. It wasn't vague as such predictions were made when they were made to the, apost- uh, the multitudes. This was for their ears only. It's interesting that before when Jesus spoke of his death, he said such things as, we must needs go to Jerusalem. Now, Jesus says, we are going. The details of the prediction were amazingly specific. He spoke of his betrayal by Judas. He spoke of his condemnation. He spoke of his being turned over to the Gentiles and mocked. Jesus spoke of his scourging and death by crucifixion. He also spoke of his resurrection on the third day. In light of all of the discussion concerning wealth and rewards, Surely, Jesus uttered this prediction to keep the materialistic desires of his apostles in check and to prepare them for what would happen very soon. Luke tells us in his account that they did not understand, that the saying was hidden from them, and that they did not know the things that were spoken. But the point is simple. Their previously held views of what the Messiah would be like and the nature of his reign were so strong that they could not or would not grasp the significance of what Jesus was saying. It was as if they could somehow not possibly think that his words were literal concerning his death. I mean, after all, this is Jesus. How could this possibly be? Now, thank you for mentioning that, Greg. I'd never noticed that before. Every one of the synoptic accounts says that Jesus took his apostles aside privately and said this. And I I guess there isn't an instance where he spoke this clearly, um, to my knowledge, to the multitudes. They did have, uh, you know, the sign of Jonah. Jesus spoke openly about, you know, this sign of Jonah uh, destroy this temple, and in three days they'll rebuild it. Probably, I guess, just doing that so that uh, this would be a revelation that they became aware of and understood after the fact. You know, after he rose from the dead, then they would remember what he had said about the son of Jonah. Okay, let's move ahead and see a, a rather interesting event, which seems to be a little bit out of character. And certainly later on in the lives of these individuals, this will be uh, somewhat out of character. But I want to see the rebuke of James and John for asking for the chief honors in, in, in the time to come. It's in Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28, also found in Mark chapter 10, 
verses 35 through 45. Jacob, would you mind reading Matthew's account? Yeah, it says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you desire? She said to him, Say that in your kingdom these two sons of mine shall sit, one at your right and one at your left. But Jesus replied, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, My cup you shall drink, but to sit at my right and at my left is not mine to give, but it is for those whom it has been prepared by my Father. And after hearing this, the other ten disciples became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles domineer over them, and those in high position exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wants to become prominent among you shall be your servant, and whoever desires to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, Mark tells us that James and John made the request, while Matthew informs us that the mother of the two came with them and made the initial request. However, Matthew also shows that when Jesus responded, he responded not to the mother, but to James and John. By explanation, Mark simply does not tell us of the mother's initial request, for it is really the sons who were making it. And Matthew does not tell us that the request was made in such a way as it was to try to get Jesus to promise to fulfill it before it was asked. It reminds me kind of of a child about to make a request of his parents. I don't know if you guys used to do this when you were kids, but but I did. Preface the request by saying, promise you won't say no until you hear what I'm asking. (laughs) It appears that the use of the the mother to make the request and the way it was asked is evidence that James and John were somewhat ashamed of what they were asking in the first place. Yeah, it does seem like they're hiding behind mom as if to say, well, who can't blame a mother for seeking the exaltation of her her sons? But I think Jesus clearly sees through that and goes to the source of of what's uh, causing this to happen. You know, the way it reads, it just... It reads really badly coming on the heels of Jesus announcing his death. Now, appreciate the fact that this is a different context. It's not as though, uh, I mean, the fact that the mother is there shows us that Jesus has left his immediate 12, and, and this is a little time later, not much, but at the same time, the mother hasn't heard this. Just think of what this would have been if if this was the response to, I'm going to go die on a cross for you guys. Oh, by the way, can you exalt me? That's the way I originally had thought of this, just because it reads that way, but this is a separate uh, separate setting a little bit. But still, the fact that, uh, that these apostles who are hiding behind their mother are are thinking about this after Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die for you, uh, it still doesn't fit really well. Uh, the fact that Jesus is so sacrificial and they're thinking of, of, of exaltation. I think Jesus' response involves several different things. First of all, they did not understand the nature of the kingdom nor the difficulty inherent in what they were asking. The word cup, as Jesus used it in his response, 
means whatever portion was to be experienced, whether of pleasure or of sorrow. Most frequently, it was used with reference to sorrow, and that is how Jesus was using it. The baptism to which Jesus referred was the baptism of suffering, which means to be overwhelmed by it. James and John, they, they, they weren't lacking in courage. I believe they understood that Jesus was saying that suffering was to be involved, possibly death, and they confidently asserted that they would be able to go through it. Maybe they thought that Jesus was referring to some battle or conflict that would come with the ushering in of the earthly kingdom that they anticipated. But at any rate, Jesus affirmed that they would share in his suffering and be baptized with the same baptism of suffering that he endured. James would be killed by Herod Agrippa, while it is believed that John, after years of exile, died a natural death in Ephesus. Some believe that Jesus affirmed in his statement, but to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my Father, that there are to be chief seats in heaven, positions of higher honor. I don't believe that to be the case. In the next verses, it certainly seems to indicate that Jesus was pointing out that the whole idea of one above another, the whole idea of elevating oneself is contrary to the kingdom. What we might think elevates a man is not what God thinks and holds to. Anybody have anything to add? Yeah, I, I think we can certainly understand the reaction of the, the ten disciples in verse 24 um, with, with the two brothers there of, you know, well, what makes you guys so much greater than us? Why do you get to ask this question and becoming upset with them? Um, I, I think it's certainly an understandable reaction, but verse 28 um, jumps out to me and um, just if anyone deserved to be served and, and and he does Jesus does deserve to be served certainly today but in the midst of on on earth while Jesus Christ was on earth as a man uh, if anyone deserved to be served it was him absolutely but that's not why he came to earth he did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many uh, makes me think of a, a Philippians 2 and the the uh, unselfish attitude that Jesus showed to us and that we're to show to others. Just a an awesome picture of what how great Jesus was and yet and, and is, but despite that, still was of excellent and awesome service that we're able to model after today. Okay, let's move on and talk about the healing of the blind men at Jericho. It's found in Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 through 34, which we will be reading. But it's also found in Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52, and Luke chapter 18, verses 35 through 43. You know, for time's sake, we're just reading one of the accounts in the Synoptic Gospels. But we need to understand that in the Synoptic Gospels, different details are given by different authors. And I think that's important for us to remember. So Matthew chapter 20 verses 29 through 34. Now as they went out from of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. Then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet, 
But they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. So Jesus stood still and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes. And immediately their eyes received sight and they followed him. You know, it's obvious that there are several differences in these narratives of the same event. Matthew tells us that it was two men. Mark and Luke only mention one. Can this be harmonized? Certainly it can. The one individual was quite clearly the more forceful personality of the two. Mark even gives us his name, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. Mark also says, as he went out of Jericho, And to this Matthew agrees. But Luke says, as he was come nigh unto Jericho, can this be harmonized? Yes, it can. Out of several different explanations that have been offered, the following are the three that make the most sense to me. First, as Jesus entered Jericho, Bartimaeus called for help but was too late to be heard as Jesus was in front of the large crowd and the blind man did not realize who he was until he had passed by. Determined to be healed, he circled the town, was joined by another blind man, appealed to Jesus, and was healed. It seems as though John Calvin originated this explanation, and it has been since adopted by many. I suppose that it's possible, but that sure seems to require a great deal of speculation. The second explanation is that Jericho, captured by Joshua, had long since been in ruins. But two others are identified and referred to in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Josephus also mentions them. They laid a short distance apart directly in Jesus' path, whether he came across the Pilgrim's Ford from Perea or had crossed the Damieth Ford near the mouth of the Jabbok and was traveling down the western bank of the Jordan River. If pursuing the other course, Jesus probably would pass through the older Jericho and cross the plain into the newer Jericho. Between the, old, between the two, the miracle took place. Matthew and Mark therefore refer to the older city, while Luke refers to the newer. This explanation probably originated with McKnight, and also has been widely adopted by many others. I've said all of this just to say that this, there are different accounts given in the different synoptic gospels, provide us with different information about the event and this seems most plausible to me Um, you know I I do appreciate one thing about our society today it does seem that there's greater respect for those with uh, with some handicap or deformity than, than you read about in scripture it's just we live in a time where people are sensitive to uh, to that sort of thing, and you know, you read the scriptures, and it's just appalling how how dismissive and uh, and just discompassionate they the people were towards those who were suffering. Those who were blind in this case are just uh, they're just uh, rebuked for even uh, have some compassion for a blind person who wants to be made well. Can you imagine? told that you should be quiet. No, just be quiet. Just 
just endure this blindness for the rest of your life. Yeah, yeah, someone who has healed in the past and has the power to heal is passing by. What do you expect these people to do? So they cry out, oh, Lord, save us. Look at the faith by of calling him the Lord, of calling him the Son of David. This is great faith that not many have had concerning Jesus. They see him as the Messiah, and Jesus... Uh, cares much much more about uh, these two and their faith and their request and their need than he does, thankfully, uh, of what the multitude thinks should be done. Yeah, excellent point. And even to the with the crowd saying, um, to, to telling them to stop um, and to be quiet, and I love how, at least the New American Standard puts it, they cried out all the more. Uh, it wasn't that, okay, well, we'll tone it down a little bit. It was that we were to keep it going, crying out all the more uh, to Jesus. Um, and he does stop for them and ask what they want um, of him. And they obviously are going to say they want their eyes to be opened. And as Jesus often um, is, as we see in the Gospels, verse 34, was moved with compassion, touches their eyes. And as often said, when Jesus heals somebody, um, immediately, they regain their sight. And I love their reaction of um, they, they praise God and also that they, they follow him. It wasn't a, um, a thank you, we'll see you later, that, um, that they've gotten what they wanted and we're going to leave, but they're going to follow Jesus. Um, I think it's just an awesome thing, an example for us to follow. That It's not that we have been forgiven of our sin or our prayer has been answered and then we run and go the other way once we feel like we don't have the need for, for God anymore. We need him at all times, even if our sickness or our ailment, our sin has been cured. We still need to follow after Jesus, just as these two men do. An excellent example for us to follow. Okay, all three accounts, and we need to be clear about this, give us different details of the miracle. Matthew says Jesus touched the eyes of the two blind men. Luke tells us that he gave a command, receive thy sight. Both Mark and Luke include, thy faith has made thee whole. Mark adds the comforting, go thy way. Each account gives different details, and by putting them together, we can see the entire picture. Bartimaeus, now able to see, followed Jesus glorifying God. The multitude also gave praise to God for what they had witnessed. Anything else to add to this? Okay, that's going to do it for this program today. We appreciate so much each and every one of you who is listening. Again, we encourage you, give us a give us a uh, contact by going to the website at www.nkcfc.com and let us know what you're thinking. And also, we ask you to let your friends know about the podcast. Until next time then, Thanks again for listening.